this season we're following the common lectionary, which guides congregations through a three-year cycle while covering a majority of the scriptural themes and passages. And we are moving deeper into the Gospel of Luke this morning where we find Jesus' inaugural sermon in a familiar text called the Beatitudes, which actually also means blessing and happy in Latin. The Beatitudes show up in only two of the four Gospels. In the book of Matthew, Jesus delivered this sermon up on a mount. In Luke, he prays on the mountain first, but then he comes down to our level to preach. In Matthew's virgin, Jesus delivers nine blessings. In Luke, we only get four. Matthew's offers us some theological wiggle room as he writes, blessed are those who hunger in spirit. But Luke's is targeted directly at us, and it's far less comforting. Blessed are you who literally hunger now. Perhaps worst of all about our text this morning, before we read it, Luke, Luke's four blessings are counterbalanced with four rebukes or woes. And this puts most of us in a predicament. With that in mind, let's listen to our gospel reading this morning. It's found in Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him. For power came out of him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well for you, and that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel says they came to hear what Jesus had to say. The gospel says they came to be healed. They came from all over. They dropped what they were doing. They stopped their busy lives, come hell or high water. Each of them found a way to show up at the base of the mountain that day to hear Jesus and to be healed. It says they were trying to touch him because power was coming out of Jesus and healing them. That's what it says. Huge crowd. Gentiles from nearby towns and disciples and locals. Some were diseased. Some were troubled by unclean spirits. Some were poor. They weren't poor in spirit. They were flat broke. Debt collectors, eviction notices, the whole thing. Some of them were literally starving. 
And it says some folks in the crowd were weeping, breaking down right there in the middle of the crowd. And obviously, there were also leaders and business owners and landlords and clergy and rich and powerful, popular people. It seems they also came to hear Jesus and to be healed. They too must have been diseased and troubled. They too must have been trying to catch a hit of Jesus' power. So many woes. By the time we get to Jesus, whether it's taken us a week or a few months or two years or a lifetime, by the time we finally get to the point of realizing we actually cannot save ourselves, we are carrying so many woes. Woe is me. Woe is you. So many troubles and worries and fears and regrets. There may have been times we'd go anywhere or do anything to just put down some of our woes or to hear a word of hope or even to be healed. And by the time we get to the base of this mountain, of course, it's crowded. And we waited for a long time to finally show up. And so instead of asking, what is Jesus like? We show up this morning asking, what can Jesus do for me right now? I don't blame the crowd for asking that. I mean, isn't that the deal? Jesus saves, Jesus heals, Jesus forgives. Isn't that what we really need? Why else would we make the trip in the first place? Frankly, as much as we would love for Jesus to heal our bodies and our spirits and our marriages and our friendships and our mental health and this nation of ours, most of all, maybe we just showed up for nothing more than a good word in a little space to breathe. I mean, sure, we're curious. We want to be healed, but we're exhausted. I mean, I'm exhausted. And perhaps it's true we've lowered our expectations. If all we walk out of here with is a reminder of God's grace and unconditional love, well, isn't the, tr the trip worth it? We're not asking for much, right? which is exactly why the last thing we want to hear are a bunch of targeted rebukes and provocations called woes. We shouldn't have been surprised. This is how Jesus has been behaving since he was 13. He backtalked his mama after being separated near the temple. He offended his family and friends before they nearly pushed him off a cliff. He convinced Peter to row into the deepest, most dangerous waters after he'd endured a full night of fishing, and now he finally meets me and you face to face, and he's turned the mirror on us. From Jesus' lips to our ears, woe is you. Look out, rich people. Just wait. <laughs> You'll be starving enough soon. Woe is you. You may be laughing now, but you just wait. Woe is you, all you people who enjoy status and popularity. It's going to catch up to you. What a friend we have in Jesus. Whatever you expected from Jesus when you showed up here this morning, I doubt it was a public smackdown. If we knew he'd make us feel guilty or bad or somehow responsible for a mess we probably didn't even create, we never would have showed up in the first place. So yeah, we're a little surprised, but more than that, we're offended. 
Are we supposed to feel guilty because we pay our bills? Should we feel ashamed for laughing every now and then in the middle of a global pandemic? Are we bad people because our hard work is rewarded? Now, I guess we have some options. We could ignore Luke's version and only read the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew, or we could just skip the last few verses of the text. We could come up with some theological justification that better suits our current state of mind and our attitudes about what it means to be Christian. We could take what we want and leave the rest behind, but what sort of faith would that be? What is faith without God's law and moral expectation? What is faith without commitment or discipline? What is faith without community and embodied worship? You tell me, what is faith without sacrifice? I don't know what it is, but it's not Christianity. And let's be honest, there is nothing happening in this world right now. There is nothing happening in this world right now that will allow us to fool ourselves or soothe ourselves or abdicate ourselves from what it means to live a life according to the depths of God's steadfast love and grace. If the last two years have done nothing else, they have revealed humanity's deep need for God's intervention. Are we here for a comforting word? Or are we here to be transformed? Because a faith built along the lines of our whims and our wishes or our narrow perspectives or even our desire to be good will not withstand the harsh realities of what's happening out there. Not these days. As Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber puts it, Coffee mug faith isn't going to cut it. Faith that is really a cheerful outlook sprinkled on top of an already good life may have helped in the past, but now it's useless. In order for it to be of any real help, faith cannot be the decorations and the furniture. Faith has to be the load-bearing structure that can withstand flood and fire and global pandemics. Listen to this. The reason is because faith isn't the thing that goes first when a crisis happens. It's what's left after the crisis happens. When the power of positive thinking fails us, when the empty promises of capitalism fail us, when our attempts to change ourselves and others fail us, when our vision for what our lives were supposed to look like or should look like, when all those visions have failed us, when our bodies and our dreams fail us, faith is all that remains. And in a culture of yes and more, we actually show up to the base of that mountain in the midst of a big crowd, not fully committed to God, but to the idols of this world who have been telling us yes. Yes, we can choose. Yes, we can have it all. Yes, we can win if we just try hard enough. Yes, we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. Yes, we deserve God's blessing. We are entitled to health and wealth and longevity. And for many of the us, this has been true until, well, it's not true. 
And then we remember that blessings of faith come to us on God's terms and not our own. And this morning in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is laying out those terms. And if we read between the lines, we might hear Jesus saying, Look, people, you all found me this time. You came to me. I was up there on the mountain praying, minding my own business. And now you showed up and you want something from me. But I got to tell you this. The world doesn't belong to Amazon. No. The world does not belong to Elon Musk. No. Or Russia or China, or even America, no, no, no. He reverses the whole thing. He says, no, not now, not later. The world belongs to God, our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer is God. Rome's boot pressing on the neck of Jerusalem, the quiet man in the crowd weeping right next to you, the starving child on the edges of the gathering, the entire setup is being turned on its head, and these blessings and woes are not suggestions for a good life or good advice. They are the requirements of God's mercy. You see, this is just the way it is with God. And not only is God's grace not transactional, but God prioritizes those who are suffering the most. Jesus says, nope, not today. As long as someone else is suffering in the crowd, don't even think about reaching out to touch the hem of my robe. If your pockets are full of gold and someone else in the crowd is suffering, do not pretend you need more. There's no crime in eating well, but you can't exclude the poor from your table. Not in my world not in the world that is ordered by God. And so now we're stuck. What do we do? What does it mean to stand face to face with a Savior who loves us enough to actually say no? Well, it sounds pretty good if we consider the crowd and we're not considering ourselves to hear no. No, the cost of doing business is not your integrity. No. Smear campaigns and divisive politics are not okay. No, marriages are not meant to sustain verbal jabs or the silent treatment. No, money and popularity and power will not satisfy your souls. No, no one should have to choose between their medication and their groceries. No, I promise you this pandemic is not going to last forever. This world right now belongs to God, and it is God's work that is changing it right now. Even as I preach and you hear, by God's Holy Spirit, we are changing. So let me tell you something about these woes. I think we avoid these woes because we don't want to feel guilty. I think deep down we're afraid Jesus might be telling us we're bad people because we're privileged. And I'll tread lightly because these days there are political implications for naming privilege. But that's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is doing because there are also spiritual and theological implications to the way we are positioned in society. Privilege of any sort, gender, race, physicality, mental acuity, class. 
To whom much is given, much is required. Sometimes good news is hard to swallow. But before the gospel is comforting and liberating, it is conflicting and we resist it. Before we can experience the liberating freedom of God's grace, we are called to acknowledge our own shortcomings and our own deep need for repentance. And honestly, honestly, the entire gospel is offensive. The entire thing is for the weak, not for the strong. It's for the foolish, not the wise. It's for the sinner, not the self-righteous. It's for the marginalized, not the insider. It's for the dependent, not the one who really likes to be in control. The gospel is not challenging to us. It is because there are parts of our lives that we consider off-limits for the gospel to change. So how about those woes? You know, guilt can be uncomfortable, but it can also be a helpful guidepost calling us to turn back to God in those times when we have missed the mark or sinned in some way. Guilt is about what we do. I did a bad thing, and now I know, and I will do better. Guilt is a result of missing the mark, of offending someone or turning away from God. But shame, shame, shame is perpetuated by others who judge the entirety of who we are as incompetent or unredeemable. Shame attacks our identity. I am a bad person. I am unworthy. I am unredeemable. It paralyzes our faith and leads us to hide and to isolate ourselves. So to be clear, God is not and never has been and never will be in the business of shame. Why not? Because number one, we are all made in the beauty of God's image, Imago Dei, and there is no shame in God's creation. And number two, shame denies the gospel. If God's love and grace are made real for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then that shame prevents us from experiencing it. And there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look, no one is perfect. No one is worthy of God's love. And that's just it. We are embraced and invited and accepted just as we are because Christ alone is worthy. And it is this single truth that frees us from the bonds of guilt and sin and the distortion of shame. And it is this single truth that propels us towards the future, that allows us to stand in the crowd and know that whatever Jesus says, blessing or woe, it is said in love with the hope and the courage and the encouragement for us to stick together and to move towards the future in good hope. Jesus loves us as we are. Jesus sees us where we are. But Jesus will not leave us where we are. You want some good news? God is far more concerned with where we are going than where we have been. God is far more concerned with what we are going to do than what we have left undone or what we have done. No one is unreachable. No one is unredeemable. No one is outside the bounds of God's love because nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Let us pray. Trusted God, in this parched pandemic landscape, when we've all been exiled into uncertainty and constant change, it's difficult to send our roots into streams of living water. We're distracted and overwhelmed, moving from one worry to the next. Our souls long for you. Be our guide, O God, leading us to the spiritual streams of support that you so graciously provide. On this crisp morning, we ask that you be with those who live in fear of war and violence. Bless those whose borders are threatened. Gather all your people under the banner of peace so that we might come to know each other and love each other as we have been called. We ask that you be with the traumatized and the victimized, the oppressed. Ground those who feel helpless and are spinning. Renew those who are weary and overwhelmed. Heal those who are suffering and sick. Love and comfort those who are grieving. Gather us together so that we can learn to be tender and merciful with one another and with ourselves. United as the body of Christ, we lift these prayers and the prayers that rest silently on our hearts to you, Savior God. Hear us now as we pray the prayer Christ taught us by saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, God has led us to prosperity. So with humble and grateful hearts, let us now return to God a portion of what we've been given.
with gratitude and thanksgiving. Let us now dedicate these gifts to God using our printed prayer. Let us pray. Holy One, bless and multiply these gifts of our time, talent, and treasure as tokens of our trust in you. Use them to bless the poor, feed the hungry, and comfort those who weep. Amen.
There is nowhere you can go and there is nothing you can do that will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Go now and serve the Lord in peace. Amen.